We're continuing our series in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, and we're at question 20, which introduces a wonderful new section to us. Uh, We've been looking for a while at the terrible consequences of the fall, which is perhaps not the most pleasant subject to look at. And now we're looking at the remedy for that from God's promise. In looking at the fall of the human race, we saw that we rebelled against our holy, loving, gracious, and just creator. We rejected him, wretches that we are. Um, when, our, when our father Adam ate the forbidden fruit, the first man who spoke for us all went into rebellion. It was a rejection of God as our God and a, direct, a declaration that we would not obey him or be his servants, but that we would go our own way. saw something about, of that this morning with the uh, parable of the vineyard and uh, how that these guys wanted to, they wanted to bring forth the fruit that, for themselves, not fruit for God. And that's so often the way it is. God responded to our rebellion, human rebellion, with appropriate judgment. Question 17, we saw that there were two consequences for every human being. So let's recite the answer to that question. I'll I'll ask the question and then you can do the the answer to recite it in unison. Uh, Question 17, into what estate did the fall bring mankind? The fall brought mankind into an estate of sin and misery. That was a complete reversal of our original condition. Because before the fall, we were holy and happy. That's how God made us. But after the fall, we were sinful and miserable, unhappy, a condition of sin and misery. Question 18 and 19 that we looked at in the next weeks after we did 17, um, go on to look further into this condition of sin and misery and what it entails. It It looks at each one separately. So question 18, let's do this one as well. Wherein consists the sinfulness of that estate wherein two man fell? The sinfulness of that estate wherein two man fell consists in the guilt of Adam's first sin, the want of original righteousness and the corruption of his whole nature, which is commonly called original sin together with all actual transgressions which proceed from it. Question 19 talks about misery. What is the misery of that estate wherein two man fell? All mankind by their fall lost communion with God, are under his wrath and curse, and so made liable to all miseries of this life to death itself, and to the pains of hell forever. So this is clearly a condition that we can do nothing to rectify, this condition of sin and misery. Because it is, in a, con- because it is a condition of sin, then we are in a kind of a desperate rebellion, really, by nature. We don't even want to serve God. And even if we try we find that we still keep on sinning. It's a condition that, into which we had fallen. And the condition of misery is because of all of God's wrath and curse for our sin. And there's nothing that we can do ourselves on our own to make sin right. We have forfeited any right to God's favor and his justice demands eternal punishment for us. According to God's word then, We are completely hopeless without God and without hope in the world, headed for a crisis eternity. That's a despairing situation. And of course, I have stressed to you that nobody wants to face how bad our condition really is. We want to minimize it, of course. No one wants to really face that. We want to deny that God is angry with us when he actually is angry with us. And we want to deny that our sin is as bad as it is and as encompassing as it actually is. It's this denial of our fallen condition that 
because of this, that churches often begin to stray from what God has actually said. You remember, I told you when we looked at that a few weeks ago that the danger is in what the danger is in denying how bad our condition is. It's that we will be satisfied with a superficial solution. If you don't know the gravity of the problem, then a superficial solution will seem adequate, sufficient. If we don't admit the depths of our fallen estate, then we'll start to think that we can do something to fix ourselves, to save ourselves. We will think that we only need a little bit more moral guidance to save us. We think that people can be saved maybe in all different ways. That the way that God appointed through Christ is not the only way. It's not necessary to have that way. That other people can have other ways that are just as effective. We will think that a Jesus who is not really God can save us. Almost all the cults will go in that direction. They, they, they deny the deity of Christ. They just need a superficial savior. They don't, because they, they base their salvation on their own works. We'll think that the cross is only an example of commitment and suffering for our cause rather than an atoning sacrifice because we don't need the Son of God to die on the cross. We will think that some self-improvement and some encouragement is all we need. Everything will be okay. A little bit of self-help, a little bit of, um, a little bit of um, pep talk, and everything will be fine. But there is no need for us to deny the extent of our fallen condition. There is no need because there is an adequate solution, a way of salvation that God has appointed. God has not left us to perish in our sin and misery. And that's what question 20 talks about. Let's take a look at that question. That's the one we're doing today. Let's recite it together. Question 20. Did God leave all mankind to perish in the estate of sin and misery? God having, out of his mere good pleasure from all eternity, elected some to everlasting life, did enter into a covenant of grace to deliver them out of the estate of sin and misery and to bring them into an estate of salvation by a Redeemer. Now we'll look at each part of this in just a moment. First, though, we'll have our scripture reading. I've chosen uh, for this, it's Ephesians 1, the first 14 verses. And this is a wonderful opening to Ephesians. It talks about God's grace coming to us to rescue and deliver us from that condition of sin and misery that we could not deliver ourselves from. So here is the word of God, Ephesians 1.1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. What a turnaround, eh? Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he has made us accepted in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. Now, I just want to pause for a minute. Think about our psalm of focus, Psalm 2. What do we see? Is God's solution for the fallen world? 
I have set my king on my holy hill to reign. I've given the nations to him as his inheritance. That's what this is talking about. God purposed to bring everything together in Christ. Okay, moving on. Verse 11. In him also, in Christ also, we have obtained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of, the, of his glory. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and whom also having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Praise be to God. May he add his blessing to the reading of his holy and infallible word. You can see how this passage speaks of God's glorious, gracious salvation of sinners. I want you to see, first of all, how God's eternal plan of redemption is revealed to us here. It's summarized in verse 10 with the words that I paused to mention as we were reading, that he might gather together all things in Christ. That is God's way of salvation. Everything was out of order because of the fall, And God's solution is to gather it all back together in Jesus Christ, the Savior. It says that he will gather all things in heaven and and, uh, and and under him. Oh, he'll gather all things in heaven to be under him. that, That would be the angels. Many of the angels, you know, are fallen. They went astray and they brought sin into the creation. But Christ is going to judge the angels. There's those that are elect, that are holy, that never fell. The angels are different than us. And the ones that fell that will never be redeemed. They're not, there's no redemption for them. They'll be cast into the pit. And when he does that, when he brings the angels under him, then that will bring great change. No more will Satan have dominion or influence in the world with all of those angels that are in league with him. So that's the first thing. He will gather all things in heaven under Christ. And it says that God's plan is to gather all things in earth in Christ. All things in the earth. That includes the very creation itself, which fell under God's curse because of man's sin. Presently, there is suffering and death and famines and earthquakes. We've been learning a lot about sickness lately. It's been a big topic around Psalm 8 reminds us that man was originally given dominion over all creation. And Hebrews 1 informs us that that dominion is restored in Jesus Christ. We don't see it fully manifested yet because it's not until he returns and death and everything is subdued at the last day. But the whole creation will be brought back into subjection so that things like bacteria won't attack us. We won't have uh, viruses that attack us. And it says, so, so he will gather things in earth, that would be the creation. But the great focus of Ephesians 1 is that the elect people of God are gathered in Christ. That is God's plan and purpose in salvation. Look at how it's stressed. If you look at your Bible, verse 3 says that we're blessed with every spiritual blessing. Where? In Christ. It's because we're brought into Christ. Verse 4 says that God chose us in Him that we should be holy. How do we have our holiness? By our union with Christ, that we're in Him. Verse 5 says that we're adopted in Him. He is the Son of God We become sons through union with him. Verse 6 says that we're accepted in him. You are rejected. We were all rejected. But Christ, his son, is accepted. We come to Christ who bled for us and we're accepted in him, in Christ, for his righteousness. 
Verse 7 says that in him we have redemption. That's really the, the blood atonement I was just talking about. He made the payment for our sins. That redemption is accepted. And so therefore, we have redemption that pays for our sins in him. For out of him, you don't have any redemption there. You're on your own. Verse 11, that we have obtained a full inheritance in him. We're joint heirs with Christ. We inherit all things. We inherit a place in the house of God. Verse 13, that in him we were sealed with the Holy Spirit. Jesus is anointed with the Holy Spirit. It's only when we come to him that we also receive the Holy Spirit. And the sealing of the Holy Spirit is is the Spirit giving us the beginnings of the riches that we will have from the Spirit that will transform our lives even more at the last day. We have the beginning of that. We begin to be able to walk with God, to know God, to trust God, and to live according to his precepts. So as we saw recently, God tells us that his solution for the world, Psalm 2 again, I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. That's where Christ is at the head of God's people where we come in him. That God rescued us by gathering us in Christ is what the catechism states here. Look at the overall focus. Question 20, the catechism says, did God leave all men to perish in the estate of sin and misery? So you think of the estate, if you think of it like a, a, a box over here that we were put in, the estate, the place of sin and misery. That's where our location was after the fall. And then it says that the estate of salvation, that uh, the, the answer is essentially no, that he didn't leave us there, did not leave us in the estate of sin and misery, but brought us into an estate of salvation by a redeemer. So he takes us out of the estate of sin and misery and brings us into an estate of salvation. And what we're brought into is Christ. It's by a redeemer that this is done. So this estate of salvation is what we have in Christ. The catechism will go on in future questions to stress all that Christ does for our salvation and how God brings us into union with Christ. For example, when we get to question 30, catechism will tell us that the Holy Spirit applies to us the redemption purchased by Christ by working faith in us and thereby uniting us to Christ in our effectual calling. That's how we get in in Him. It's only in Christ, the Son of God, through faith in Him, that you can be delivered from the estate of sin and misery. As long as you're over here on your own and you're in the estate of sin and misery, but you come over in Christ, God brings you together in Christ, and then you have salvation and you have new life. You have forgiveness and new life. Now, next, I want you to see that this deliverance is by God's grace. This is truly stress. Do you know what it means to say that something is by God's grace? Sometimes people find that confusing because grace is used in a little bit different ways in in the scripture for various purposes. But when we say that we're saved by grace, it basically means that you didn't do anything to contribute to it. There was no merit in you or nothing that you brought to the table. It was by grace. It was free, free grace. It didn't earn our deliverance. And of course, there was nothing that we could do. You've already seen that. That's why if you make the situation, if you minimize the condition that you're in, this condition of sin and misery, then you're going to maybe come with a superficial solution that's really not going to help. But if you realize there's nothing I can do, then you've got to look to the real solution, which is Christ alone. So self-rescue is completely beyond us. Grace alone is able to save us. We were such such desperate offenders that we could not meet the demands of justice. So as to be done with that, so God, God demanded eternity in hell for our offense, and it would take us forever, forever to complete that. If you're left over here on your own, you're going to have to be paying for your sin forever, and you're adding more sin. So how, what are you ever going to even do? And we were in such desperate rebellion that we would never come to even receive pardon if God didn't work in us. And uh, we, much less would we be radically transformed. That's his work. We come to him. We look to him. 
So self-rescue, completely beyond us. Grace is how we're saved. That salvation was all of God's grace is something that the scripture emphasizes. It has to emphasize this. You know why? Because it's natural for us to want to say that we helped. (laughs) It's natural for us to look at something that we did that made the real difference. And that's the funny thing about it. Once you add something that we do, that becomes the the thing that that makes the difference. You know, I did this, so-and-so didn't do that. But there's a constant tendency for us to boast when we have been rescued. You know, to, boy, you should have seen me holding on to that rope or whatever it was when you got rescued. Somebody snatched you by the collar and pulled you out is more how it was. But uh, at least something that I did. We might admit that we did not do much, but we're always looking for that thing that we can credit to ourselves. And, and when you do that, it keeps you from giving glory to God. Where it says over and over, you're saved by grace, you're saved by grace, you're saved by grace. So Jesus and the apostles and Moses and the prophets keep telling us in Scripture, it's not what we did, <laughs> but it was by grace that we were saved. You didn't bring yourself out of Egypt, Israel, when you were in Egypt. You didn't part the Red Sea. You didn't bring all the plagues. You didn't release yourself from Pharaoh. That was what God did. That's a picture of what he does in delivering us from bondage to our sin. That salvation was all of God's grace is something Scripture definitely emphasizes. It has to emphasize this, again, because it's natural for us to want to say we helped. So, um, you know, we, we might admit that there's not much that we could do, but we're always looking for, for something or other. Because salvation by grace is often denied, all the Reformed catechisms emphasize it. Because you see, at the Reformation, the goal was to reform what the church believes and bring it in line with Scripture. So when they were stating their creed or their confession of what they believe, salvation by grace is always one of the things that is emphasized to counter this problem that we have of always wanting to add something of our own. The obvious teachings of Scripture are distorted and said to mean something other than what they say, and, the, and people do not object to it because it's something we kind of want to believe, okay? If I can get a little bit of a credit for my salvation, then I'll take it, right? You know, we want credit even when it's not due. It's always been a problem, and the more you get away from salvation by grace the more you get away from Christ. And Christ is the one that God set on his holy hill for our salvation. So that's a tragedy because you're not looking to him anymore, but you're looking to your own good works or whatever. You end up trusting in what cannot save you rather than what can. And you get into all these self-help programs and junk. Okay, look at how salvation by grace is emphasized in our text. First, it says in verse 4, that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. When God made the decision to save you, you had absolutely nothing to do with it. He made the decision to save you as an individual before he had even created the first individual. So he can't come along and say, oh, look, I did this. No, God was the one. It was his choice before. Verse 5 declares plainly that it was wholly his decision that you would be saved and not yours. It says that it was according to the good pleasure of his will. It was what he was pleased to do within himself apart from anyone's influence, according to his will. Verse 9 goes a step farther in declaring this when it says that he acted according to the good pleasure which he purposed in himself. So see, in verse 5 it says, according to the good pleasure of his will. Then verse 9 says, according to his good pleasure which he purposed in himself. No one twisted God's arm. No one even suggested that he should save sinners. The whole idea was God's. Verse 6 says that he did it to the praise of the glory of his grace. What does that mean? That means that he did it in a way that he would get the glory for it. He did it to show all his creatures how gracious he is to save those who in no way deserve it. He deliberately arranged things in a way that would best display his grace. We're meant to look at God's deliverance of sinners and to say how gracious he is. 
how glorious God's grace is, how kind he is. He saved us when we were without strength and could do nothing. He saved us when we were undeserving, when we deserve the opposite of salvation. We want to look at what we've done for our salvation. We want some of the glory and the praise, but the glory belongs to God. The praise belongs to God. Verse 12 reemphasizes this by saying that we were saved for the praise of his glory. And verse 14 says it again, to the praise of his glory. The same focus on grace is found also in chapter 2. There it says, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. We take away from God the glory that he deserves when we in any way suggest that the reason we're saved is because of what we did. It's true that all those whom God saves come to him for salvation. We did come to him. They come and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. But even that is something that we do only by God's grace. That's what Ephesians 2 emphasizes. The only reason we come is because he changes us. He opens our eyes. He opens our hearts, like we're told of Lydia, that God opened her heart and she believed. He changes our wills. Don't let anyone tell you that it's because of you. You would have never come to Christ if God had not brought you to him. We will take this up more when we look at effectual calling. But for now, the focus is that God has rescued us and therefore he gets all the glory. That's where it belongs. It doesn't belong to anyone but God. Now I want to look at what God actually did to deliver us from the estate of sin and misery and to bring us into that estate of salvation, to take us from here where we were helpless and desperate with no hope and to bring us over here where we're in Christ and and salvation. So uh, we saw before that God does this by gathering us into Christ. How does gathering us into Christ bring us into a state of salvation? That's what I want to look at next. How is it that simply being in Christ brings salvation to us? How does that work? Well, first, God gathers us into Christ that we might have redemption through his blood. That's explained in Ephesians 1, 7, where it says, In him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. When you're in Christ, you have the benefit of his redemption through his blood that brings forgiveness. Jesus went to the cross for all his elect people, all those that God had chosen for salvation. We were all guilty desperately guilty because of original sin and because of actual sins that we commit after our corporate rejection of God in Adam. And then on top of that, the sin that we as individuals commit day by day. As I mentioned before, our guilt was something that demanded that we spend eternity in hell. That is what we deserve for rejecting our creator, even though we may not always think that that's what we deserve. But then Christ redeemed us by his blood. He went to the cross to suffer the pains of hell for us before the Father. On the cross, he was cut off for our sin, for all of us. Because he was the Son of God, he was able to pay for our sins by his suffering. A suffering that we can't even fathom the depths of because we don't know what it's like to be the Son of God and to have the relationship with the Father that he had that he suffered the shame of our sins before his father when he came here in our flesh. That's equivalent to our spending eternity in hell and still not being any farther along and paying for our, our debt. That's what Jesus did on the cross, the shedding of his blood. God, according to the riches of his grace then, has placed us undeserving sinners in Christ who has redeemed us by his blood. That's that what grace this is. There is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, gathered to Christ, turning, trusting in him, resting in him for forgiveness of our sins. <clears throat> Being forgiven means that we can be blessed by God. It means that we're no longer uh, to be punished for our sins. Now we're in Christ. 
He's going to bless us, what do we read in Ephesians? With every spiritual blessings in Christ Jesus. We are justified in his sight as if we have always done all that we ought to have done and never done anything wrong. That's the standing that we have with Christ. We are adopted as God's sons and we have an everlasting inheritance in the house of glory. All of God's gracious power is now directed to bless us, not to curse us, not to condemn us. Okay, the second thing that this gathering does, so that's the first thing. We're gathered in Christ, we're justified, we're forgiven, we're redeemed by his blood. Second, God gathers us into Christ that we might have new life in him by the Holy Spirit. This we're told in verse four, where it says that God has chosen us in Christ that we might be holy and without blame before him in love. By nature, we are desperate rebels, but when God brings us from here, gathers us into Christ, as his elect, we're transformed. We die with Christ, and we're raised with him to live an entirely new life. Now we can love God. Now we can obey God. We were, in fact, enabled by his grace to come to Jesus in the first place, to come and trust in Jesus. You wouldn't have ever done that. You wouldn't have ever repented. You wouldn't even want to come to God. All the glory goes to God for that. It's all by his grace that we trusted in Christ. As verse 12 says, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. The fact that we who are such rebels now trust in Christ is attributed to the powerful work of God's grace in us. We would never have repented if it had not been for that work. And you see how in verse 13 and 14, it adds that the Holy Spirit who did this initial work of transformation is now our guarantee that we will continue in Christ until we reach glory. We are sealed by the Holy Spirit. Once he changes us so that we come to Christ for life, we're changed forever. We're never gonna go back. Now we may struggle, we may fall sometimes, but we will not depart. The seed of life is in us and it will abide forever. If we're truly born again, that's the guarantee that we have. What a wonderful thing God has done to change us when we could not change ourselves. He will more and more help you to see the beauty and goodness of Jesus and of your heavenly father and what he has done. The spirit will do that. He will open your spiritual eyes to delight more and more in him. And as you see his glory, sin will lose its appeal. Yes, you will still have to fight with sin for the rest of your life, but you will be changed from glory to glory as you behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You will become more and more holy, more and more like Christ. If you're not sure that he has done this transforming work in you, then just ask him to do it. He will not turn you away. As I mentioned this morning, sometimes people come to God, only come to Christ only to be forgiven. And then they don't come to him to be forgiven so that they can have new life in the Lord. They just come to be forgiven. And then you're never sure because the evidence that, that he has received you is the new life that you begin to, you begin to bear fruit. If you read first john you'll see that that we we, you know, we keep his commandments we love our brothers all of these things we confess our sins we have a new life with god we're walking with god and when you when you're when you have that new life it gives you assurance that you're in him and that you have the forgiveness of sins so what an excellent thing it is to be gathered into christ as his elect there is nowhere else to find forgiveness and deliverance from bondage to sin in him we find both redemption and new life. That's what God does by his marvelous grace to deliver us from the estate of sin and misery and to bring us into an estate of salvation. Praise be to the glory of God's grace. Now I want to show you how God's grace has marvelously unfolded in redemptive history. Ephesians 1, 8 through 10 speaks of how this glorious grace was a mystery that was revealed by God to us over time. In the Bible, a mystery is something that cannot be known until God reveals it. So you don't need to think of a mystery as something that you can't know. No, it's something you can't know unless God reveals it. 
after he's revealed it, you can know it. Paul preached the mystery of the gospel and the, the inclusion of the Gentiles and such things. It was a mystery then that was unveiled over time with wisdom. God did it in a very wise, he revealed it in a wise way, revealing it over time, the mystery uh, with wisdom and prudence. It was a mystery that verse 10 says, in the dispensation of the fullness of the times that he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are in earth in him. So what we've been talking about, what is, what is, what is God's plan for salvation? Is to gather everything in Christ. That was a mystery that was revealed by God. No one knew when Adam fell, no one knew how he could be saved, what God would do. But over time, he unfolded it bit by bit, bit by bit, until Christ was brought into the world. And then we saw the fullness of the mystery revealed. God marvelously arranged history such that his elect people were gathered into Christ even before Christ came. They were gathered into him so that they could receive all the benefits of redemption and of new life by his spirit. Everything that God did with his elect over history contributed to the revelation of his redemption in Christ when Christ finally came. We can marvel at the wisdom of it all and the glory of it all. This is where covenant theology becomes very, very important because you don't have different ways of salvation that God was saving us this way and then he changed his plan and saved us this way. But you rather have the the gradual unfolding of this same redemption, the same forgiveness of sins, the same new life in Christ that comes through the centuries until finally it reaches its apex in Jesus Christ and we're still waiting for the last day when it's all going to be brought to completion for us. So the catechism refers to God's gathering his elect into Christ as his entering into a covenant of grace. Okay, this is from the catechism. Entering into a covenant of grace to deliver them out of the estate of sin and misery and to bring them into an estate of salvation by a redeemer. That's what he did all the way back to Adam, right? And then through the ages, God is is this covenant of grace, revealing it, opening it more and more until Christ comes. So let's take a brief survey of redemptive history to see how God actually did this in history. Adam and Eve, where the elect were given enmity for Satan and provided with a covering for sin. Given enmity? Yes, given enmity. When Satan enticed us, we were buddies with Satan. We shouldn't be buddies with Satan. God made us antagonistic. He made us enemies to Satan when his redemptive grace comes to us. That's the change of us by God's grace where we turn away from Satan and his leadership. He becomes our enemy. And now we turn back to God so that rather than being with Satan and against God, we're now with God and against Satan. That's, what, that, that's all the way back to Adam and Eve. God said right after they fell, I will put enmity there. Uh, So when Adam and Eve first fell into the state of misery, God came almost at once with a twofold promise of gathering them to Christ for redemption and of gathering them to Christ for new life. Those two things, gathering for redemption, gathering for new life. In Genesis 3.15, he spoke to the elect whom he called the woman's seed. And that's where he said that he would put enmity in their heart against the serpent who led them into rebellion. God, in other words, was going to make a group of people. Why were they different? Because they're gathered in Christ. A group of people that would be against Satan. He was going to make those people out of uh, which he called the seed of the woman. They were going to come back to God to serve him. And he speaks of one son in particular, one seed, who would come and have his head crushed by the serpent, but... I mean, sorry, have his heel crushed by the serpent, but would crush the serpent's head. In other words, he, Jesus Christ, would lead them out of rebellion and conquer Satan and the evil that Satan had brought, into, brought them into. God promises a people that would be delivered to be holy and without blame before him. And then if you go down to Genesis 3.21, you see gathering into Christ for redemption. Redemption. 
Here the Lord clothes Adam and Eve after the fall with skins, provides a covering for their guilt with a slain animal, with animal skins. Here you have the beginning of the death of a substitute to provide a covering for sin. What a picture, right? They're naked before God, guilty before God, kills an animal, and they're clothed. Atonement. That's what atonement is. It clothes you so that your sin is no longer before God. This was just the beginning of the portrayal of the covering that Christ would provide through his blood. Animal skins are not adequate either. Redemption through Christ's blood that was represented by those animal skins is what is adequate. It appears that God appointed sacrifice at that time with uh, animals dying to provide atonement for sin because at that time or soon thereafter, because we have the uh, offering like of Abel that was accepted by God, meaning that God had appointed, Abel didn't just come up with that. God had appointed those offerings for them. Next, we have the hist- in the history of redemption. I mean, there's many things we could look at. We're just doing a summary. But the great uh, next historical event is, is with Noah, where the elect are gathered into the ark for safety from judgment and given grace to believe and to build that ark. Here, the gathering into Christ is the gathering of Noah and his family to save them from God's judgment. That's what it is to be in Christ. You're shielded from the judgment of God. The ark is a type of Christ. The elect come to him and are redeemed by him so that they're taken away from the wrath of God. Noah also offers a sacrifice as soon as he gets off the ark, and God rejoices in the sacrifice of atonement that Noah offers. We are also told that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. By this grace, God's way of salvation is revealed to him. And by this grace, Noah believes that salvation. It's the work of God's Holy Spirit. Next, we have Abraham, where the elect are made into a kingdom of righteousness and promised a sacrifice provided by God. In Genesis, we see how Abraham, the elect, are gathered out of idolatry to be a nation that walks with God. And of course, that goes on into Exodus. God makes a covenant promising to make him into a kingdom of righteousness, a people that are holy and blameless. He says, walk before me and be blameless. I will be your God and you will be my people. Enmity against Satan that we saw with Adam. The promise is especially focused on who? On the son that will come and that will lead the nations into righteousness, that son of righteousness that establishes the kingdom, who, of course, is Jesus Christ. There's all the emphasis on the child born. Circumcision given to seal that promise of a seed that would come of the fountain of man. Years in the seed of the woman. Years later, sometime after Isaac is born, we see how Abraham was commanded to offer up Isaac for redemption through his blood. Remember at the end of, uh, of Abraham's life, he used to take him to Mount Moriah, which is the place where uh, the, the temple was later built. And uh, he was, of course, he was stopped and told that God would provide the sacrifice. That was a revelation of redemptive history. There's one coming. God will provide the sacrifice. Only God can provide the sacrifice. That was the thing that Abraham had all the way through. You can't even bring forth the child that is going to bring forth the child that will save people. God only can do it. And that was the lesson that that he was taught. It's, It's salvation by grace, and it's in Christ that you have this redemption, the sacrifice that God provides that will bless all the nations. Then you have Moses. With him, the elect are gathered out of bondage to serve God, and they're accepted by blood, sacrifice, at the tabernacle. And then the temple later on from that. By God's grace alone, they're delivered from bondage in Egypt to live for God. And so they're given his statutes and ordinances and commandments together with a promise of grace for obedience. I will circumcise your heart, God says. I'm going to change your heart so that you can walk in my statutes and ordinances why? Because you're in Christ, you see? Christ who is to come. He's, he's, he's brought them out of Egypt and placed them, maybe I should say where I was doing before, out of Egypt, out of sin and misery, to be now under Christ, their head. And by his grace, they're shown in multiple ways that their sins are covered by the blood of the covenant. That's an emphasis, of course, in Moses. 
They are shown this at Passover when God comes to judge all the families dwelling in Egypt. All the families in Egypt are going to kill their firstborn males, but spares those, it turns out, who offer blood sacrifice as a substitute. They are shown a substitute in place, one punished in place, Christ the Lamb of God. They're shown this again when God set up his tabernacle among them and appoints an altar where they're continually shown that their acceptance is by offering of substitutes for their sin. Then you have David. In his day, the people are gathered to a king. That is David, a king that has a heart after God and who leads them in God's righteous ways. He is a picture of Christ who truly has a heart after God. David wasn't so perfect, was it? But uh, he's a picture of Christ who has promised to be born a son to David and to come and reign forever on the throne in perfect righteousness. And one that God will never turn away from and one that will never die. So there's a king coming. You see, David shows us that we have this, this new place of grace in God's provision of a king with a heart after God, but looking forward to the king that has been promised all along. And we have, again, acceptance by blood sacrifice. Remember when David does sin and when he numbers the people, and, um, and we have the, uh, the atonement that, that is made to stop God's judgment. And the place where that atonement was done on that threshing floor, that was also the place where the temple was later to stand. So there was an atonement made to show that blood had to be shed for the forgiveness of sins. And then the, the temple was, was established there. And then there is the new covenant. And again, there is the promise that God's people will be gathered out from the exile. Gathered, you see, out of sin and misery. Brought out of the exile. And gathered from there to be forgiven. And given a new life as God's people. Where? In Christ the Son who is coming. And that is emphasized. This covenant is fulfilled by Jesus who comes to actually atone for sin by blood and who says what? This cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for the remission of the sins of many. Dual promise of the new covenant. Forgiveness of sin and new life that God will write his law in our heart so that we can obey and serve him. So that first part, the forgiveness of sin by the shedding of the blood of Jesus Christ. We become complete when Christ comes because only then has it come to the place where that that atonement that was required is finally offered. The others were provisional, showing us as God unfolded little by little what he was going to do. And then it reaches the climax when Christ comes. And once for all, the offering is made that reconciles us to God. And then the other part of that is fulfilled by Jesus who makes us holy and blameless by pouring out his spirit on us. He was anointed with the spirit above measure and then he poured his spirit out on us and the spirit works in us to renew our hearts, to change us so that we can be holy and without blame before God. We're forgiven by his blood, made holy and without blame, the dual promises of the covenant all the way through. How marvelously God has worked out his plan to gather all his people to Christ for forgiveness and for eternal life in the Holy Spirit. He did not leave us all to perish in the estate of sin and misery, but having out of his mere good pleasure from all eternity elected some to everlasting life, did enter into a covenant of grace to deliver them out of the estate of sin and misery and to bring them into an estate of salvation by a Redeemer. Praise be to God's glorious name. Let's praise him with song. Psalm 85a. But first let's pray. Please stand and let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we do want to thank you and praise you for the redemption that we have in Jesus Christ. We praise you that it's a twofold kind of redemption. It's redemption by the shedding of his blood so that our sins are forgiven in him. And it's also redemption that rescues us from bondage to Satan and sin, where we, would, we were in bondage to do his will. We were set against you. Our hearts were defiled and we had no interest in calling on your name or serving you. We thank you, Lord, that by the working of your spirit, that you rescue us from that bondage and that by the working of Christ, that you have cleansed us from our guilt. And we pray, Lord, that we would indeed praise you for your grace and that we would not, it seems so silly and foolish to suppose that we did something to contribute to this. Truly, Lord, it was your work. It's by grace, like it says over and over again in Ephesians. It's to the praise of your glory. It's not to our praise. It's to the praise of your glory that you rescued us and you brought us out of that dominion of sin and brought us into the, uh, your king, the kingdom of your Son, from the darkness to the light, from death to life, from guilt to forgiveness. We thank you, Lord, for the tremendous hope that this engenders to us. And we pray that we would be thrilled with this gospel and that we would live unto it, Lord, that we would live for you because we can. Now we can live for you. We couldn't before. But now your anger is turned away and you comfort us. And we pray, Lord, that we would draw from the wells of salvation with joy and that we would walk in the blessing that we have of new life and of full forgiveness. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Do you not cherish this grace? Do you not want this grace? Are you not thankful for this grace? Truly, receive Receive this blessing of grace, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.